So here we are in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 10. Many, many years ago, back in 85, my wife and I moved to Dallas, Texas for me to go to seminary. And during that time we lived in Dallas, two of my daughters were born there. And when I graduated from Dallas, I then began to pastor a church in Irving, Texas, right down the street from the dreaded Texas Stadium, of which many of you have low regard for the Dallas Cowboys. But somehow in my weakness, I began to grow fond of Dallas Cowboys. Troy Aikman was there. They were winning Super Bowls. And while you might think this is grossly wicked, I actually began to like the Cowboys. Some of you are still getting over that. Please don't walk out right now. But anyway, when we moved back up here, we were about to go to an Eagles game. I got some tickets, and my son and I were going to go to an Eagles-Cowboys game. He said, Dad, we're going to wear our Cowboys jackets, right? And I said, well, no, we probably better not do that. Why? He's just a little boy. Why? Well, see, up here, it's a little bit different. Um, it's not kind of just like fun where it's kind of a rivalry. Well, what do you mean, Dad? Well, we could get hurt. <laughs> okay, Dad, how about if um, I, I won't, you don't wear your jacket, but I'll just wear mine because I'm a little boy. They won't hurt me. And I said, well, they won't technically hurt you, but they'll probably do something to you that will cause me to intervene, and then they will hurt me. <laughs> Ten drunk men will, will, will do something unfortunate to me. So the point is, he was not aware that he was about to walk into a conflict. And in the same way, I, I share that to say, that's kind of a humorous illustration of a very sobering reality, and that is many Christians do not realize the tremendous conflict, war, battle that we're in. We just don't, especially living in America, especially living in a place where we don't, we don't understand what real war looks like on our turf. So, for example, we know of soldiers who have lost their lives because they forgot to put on their helmet. We know of policemen who have been killed that maybe could have spared their lives, but they forgot to wear their their Kevlar vest. In the same way, what we're going to be reminded of or taught for the first time this morning is that Christians are in, in a life and death conflict. It's not something that we choose. You don't enlist. You're automatic, automatically thrust into it the moment you become a Christian. There's no opportunity for you to say, I'm a, I'm a lover, not a fighter. All Christians are in a soul war that many are not aware of. And so this morning, as we look at this passage about spiritual warfare, I'm going to read it, but I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about our conflict. What is this war? Who are we fighting against? Then I want to talk about our conduct. What are we supposed to do? How am I? Okay, te teach me how I can engage here so I don't get slaughtered. And then finally, we'll talk about our conquering king. So as we're reading this passage, look for things about the conflict that we're in. Look for things about our conduct. What am I supposed to do? All right, let's start reading. Benjamin has already prayed for the Lord to lead us. We're going to read 10 through 18, and then we'll loop around and talk about it. Finally, at the end of all of these exhortations that Paul has given us, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So that has something to do with what we're supposed to do. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. These are commandments. Put on 
the full armor of God. So another thing, this is what we're supposed to do. Why? That you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. What do you mean, the schemes of the devil? Well, verse 12, for our conflict, our struggle, our war, is, it's not against flesh and blood, okay? So it's not a physical enemy that I can hit him with a club or punch him in the mouth. But our struggle, our war is against rulers, powers, the world forces of this darkness. So this is starting to sound like an organized gang, right? Not just like a bunch of thugs. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we'll come back and talk about our conflict. In the meantime, what's my conduct again? Well, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to resist. When? In the evil day. What's the evil day? And then having done everything to stand firm. Notice this repetition of resistance. Third time, stand firm, therefore. Well, how do I do that? Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And by the way, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Wait, what, what, what does that mean? And then also, it's important, make sure you take the helmet of salvation Oh, and don't forget the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And in all this, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Well, for what goal? And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So let's start by talking about our conflict. He says our struggle, our battle. Now interestingly some translations say we, we wrestle not. But the word here is, is far broader than wrestling. Okay, it's not, because actually if, if all it was is a wrestling match at the end of the day, Okay, I tap out and I get pinned. But it's far more serious than a, a wrestling match. This, this conflict with which we end has eternal, uh, that, that we're in has eternal conflict or eternal consequences. So we're in a battle against the devil and his followers, okay? W why all the aggression? Why is there a battle? Well, I wanna talk briefly about who, who, who are these beings? Because interestingly, it doesn't, it doesn't primarily mention just the devil, but it mentions his followers. So as we think about the conflict that we're in, let's just rehearse the big picture. The main conflict we're in is against Satan. The Bible calls him Satan, which means the adversary. And his conflict isn't primarily and foremost with us. Satan is in rebellion and conflict against God. 
So in his rebellion and conflict, hatred, resistance, and prior attempt to overthrow God, he now has this limited allowance by God to fight against God by coming against humans, okay? So in this conflict, Satan's number one goal is to drag as many people to hell with him as he can. Hands down, that's his greatest goal. He's not the landlord of hell. He's going to hell. He knows he's going to end up in hell. And so the Bible teaches that he actually is viciously trying to prevent people from getting saved so they will join him in hell. It's as simple as the old phrase, misery loves company. 2 Corinthians 4 says, he blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel. And, and Jesus said this, he goes, the, the birds come and snatch away the word of God from people. And he interpreted it in Luke 8, he says, this is Satan keeping people from hearing the word and getting saved. So that's his primary goal, is to keep people from getting saved. And he doesn't act alone. He uses all of these demons as well. And so, for example, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, many will fall away from the faith paying attention to demons. Well, demons don't stand up and preach in church. They stand up and preach in church through people, false teachers. So keep that big picture. His goal is to keep unsaved people unsaved. But each time a person becomes a Christian, the Bible says, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. In fact, Paul said, God told me when he quoted in Acts, he said, I'm going to send you to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. So picture Satan having all the, the world, these seven million people blind, darkened, headed for hell. God's reaching down and pulling people out of that. He's opening their eyes and rescuing them. In 1 John chapter 5, John says, the Son of God has come and given us understanding that we might know him. But he says, then the Son of God teaches us and ke or keeps us and the evil one doesn't touch us. We are of God and the whole world lies in the, in the authority of the evil one. So those of us who are believers, we recognize that we have been delivered from his power, his domain, and his destiny, but we're not removed from his presence. We are left here behind enemy lines. So the conflict that Satan has with us is while he cannot take our souls, his desire is to destroy, nullify, and make us miserable. There are terms that the Bible uses in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Now, he doesn't chew my arm off like a shark, but he seeks to devour us. He seeks to, to bring us to a place of misery, and, and, he's, and he's relentless in this. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2, we're not ignorant of his schemes. He wants to take advantage of us. Satan wants us not to grow, but to groan, to, to be tormented, to be imprisoned, to be miserable and depressed and doubtful, and to be disobedient to God. Ultimately, each person that has professed allegiance to Christ, his goal is to bring you to a place of renouncing that, to apostatize from the Christian faith. And so as I begin to understand, his motive is to keep people from God. 
His motive is to turn God's people away from God. Then I need to begin to understand his minions. Look in verse 12. They're called rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now here when it says the heavenly places, this is not way, way up somewhere in the celestial space. They're roaming around all over the earth. We have no idea how many demonic forces there are. Some suggest that it's a third of the angels that became demons in following Satan. And, and they, they appear to have rank and intelligence. They appear to have dominion over locations. In the book of Daniel, it talks about the prince of Persia. Now, some people take this too far and they're like, oh, I need to walk around my block and renounce all the territorial spirits. The Bible doesn't teach that, okay? But what it does teach is that these beings are organized, intentional, and, and, and powerful. The Bible calls Satan the serpent. We know the idea there is deception, but the serpent of old, they've been at this for a long time. And so these demons come against Christians in many different ways. Now, the interesting thing is I want you to notice a term here. Paul says that we need to learn how to stand against the methods of Satan. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The Greek word here is, is, is from which we get the English word methods. Now, usually, though, these are bad methods. Like, there's nothing wrong with the word method. Remember, John Wesley became the founder of the Methodist movement, you know, these methodical things. But this word has an underlying thing of evil methods, schemes. It's translated in chapter 4, cunning schemes of men. Now, Paul uses another word in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and this is what he says to the Christians. He goes, don't let Satan take advantage of you. We're not ignorant of his... And there he uses the word for mind. We're not ignorant of his mind. We, we, we need to learn how he thinks. Now, now think about that. Paul says to the, to, the, to the Corinthian church, don't let Satan get you because we're not ignorant of his mind. And I often ask people, how could Paul say that? How does he know that the Corinthians are not ignorant of Satan's tricks and schemes and mind? He knows because he taught them. Paul wouldn't say that to every church because if he hadn't taught them, he wouldn't say, we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. He would have turned it around and say, don't be ignorant of Satan's schemes. And any Christian who is engaged in the game would be like, well, how, how, what do I do? I've often used this analogy. Many people hate handguns, they're terrified of handguns, but I could tell you this. If right now there was a crime rate of 50%, 50% chance of someone breaking into your house and someone offered a seminar and here's how to purchase a handgun and here's how to defend your family if somebody comes in and we're going to give you a training lesson on how to use a handgun. I think a lot, a lot more people would be like, wait, could you say that again? How do, I, how do I load it? How do I pull the trigger? Suddenly I realize, hey, I'm engaged in a war here and I need to know what's going on. So when the Bible says don't be ignorant of his schemes and methods, I want to take a few moments to talk about that because in many ways, I think one of the ways that Satan just wreaks havoc in the lives of believers 
is because they don't even realize he's there. They don't even realize what the devil's doing. Much like when Peter says to Jesus, you, you, you just talked about dying. Don't ever let me hear that come out of your mouth. I rebuke you, Jesus. Don't talk like that. And Jesus goes, you just helped Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I don't think Peter heard Satan go, say this. And he goes, great idea, devil. But he was the devil's mouthpiece without even realizing it. So what are some of the broad methods that we're supposed to learn how to stand against in Scripture? I want to encourage you to do some more reading on this. We don't have time, and we can recommend some books. But for now, let's start with this. The devil is, is a deceiver. So one of his primary things is he wants Christians to believe things that aren't true. He wants, to, he wants you and me to believe lies. The Bible says he's a liar from the beginning. His chief goal is to undermine your confidence and your beliefs in the teachings of the Bible. So obviously one of his greatest desires as a deceiver is to keep Christians in an uncomfortable situation of not even knowing whether they're a Christian. He's a deceiver. So as he lies to Christians, how could you think you're a believer? What makes you think you're born again? If people knew what you were really like, if people saw the things that you do. So bear that in mind. He wants you to doubt your salvation. But beyond that, he wants you to question the word of God. So for example, when Eve is, is, is interacting with the serpent, has God really said that? And so we, we're finding Christians in droves like, well, does the Bible really say it's wrong to, to be gay? Does the Bible really say that Jesus is the only way? He's a deceiver. So he wants to, he wants to pull you away from the faith, again, 1 Timothy 4 says, in the last days, many will fall away from the faith, paying attention to demons. This is why Paul said, preachers, preach the word of God, because in the last days, men will not want to hear the word. They will want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And so all over America right now, it's not that there's great flocks of people only following First Atheist Church, but they love to go to churches where the edges are blurred and the Bible is questioned and there's this plurality and maybe there's no absolutes. And so we as Christians have to understand that. He's coming after your mind to deceive you. And if you're not in this book, you're just gonna be led astray and you're gonna start believing things that are absolutely contrary to the, to the Bible. And mark this down, whenever we, we move in our beliefs, right on the heels of that, we move in our behavior. I can tell you for sure one of Satan's primary goals is to drag you and me to sin. He wants us to sin. 1 John says, the Son of God has come to destroy the works of Satan, and the devil sins from the beginning. And there are numerous ways that he drags Christians into sin. One of his, one of his very powerful ways is sexual sin. Our country and the Christian church is being devastated with, with sexual sin, perversions and, and affairs and pornography and masturbation. And we know that the Bible says, this is one of his schemes, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says to husbands and wives, don't continually deny your, your spouse sexual fulfillment 
lest the evil one, Satan, tempts them for their lack of self-control. And so Satan wants to, he wants to come after you in your beliefs, and he wants to come after you in your behavior. And he wants to, to make you miserable. And in fact, it's, it's almost ironic. On the one hand, he's going, do it, do it, do it. And then after, after we sin, then he's in the other ear accusing us. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. You're not a Christian. How could you do that? And some of you are going, hey, how does, how does, he, how does he know my world? Because this is what the Bible teaches about Satan. And so as we understand this, I want to point out one more that I think is very important for us to understand. Satan is a divider. He's not stupid. He knows that when the people of God are united, they stand. Divided, they fall. And if you haven't looked around and observed right now in evangelical Christendom right now, he is wreaking havoc dividing people over politics and pandemics. And it is, it is wrecking churches and it is ruining Christians. And suddenly Christians are turning on one another instead of realizing, man, we got a bigger battle here than, than who our president is. They're not the exact same thing. So, so please bear that in mind that when we sow discord or when we begin to hate one another for our political views or for our views on the pandemic, when we start thinking people are idiots or weak or stupid because they don't see it our way, smell the sulfur. Satan wants to divide us as believers. So that's the conflict. Now let's talk about our conduct in the war. What exactly are we supposed to do? Because the, the thing is, this is a metaphor. Many have reminded us that Paul wrote Ephesians when he was in prison, right? And so he may very well, he was under house arrest. There may have been a Roman soldier there. If not, we know that Paul knew what Roman soldiers did. They had armor. And some of you who have grown up in Christendom, you remember when you were five years old, you got to hold the sword or the shield. And, and I don't think it's real helpful to just say to Christians, so just put on the armor, brother, because most Christians have no idea. What does that mean? Well, pray it on. Okay, I, Lord, I pray on my shield and my sword. Well, what, what does that mean? You pray it on. I don't think that's necessarily completely helpful. So I want to suggest that there's a couple things that we need to understand here. Number one, the emphasis here is on resistance. Three times he says, stand firm, okay? Resistance has to do with an unwillingness to move away in my beliefs and an unwillingness to depart from the word of God in my behavior. So in this resistance, one of the questions that's often addressed here, is it an active or a passive resistance? What does that look like? because Paul tells us to put on the armor of God. Now, each of these instruments then, he attaches something to. So let's just briefly look at them. Remember, we don't have a ton of time here, but let's talk about, all right, Lord, what am I supposed to do? Well, number one, you have to be in a posture of resistance. But then he says, in this resistance, I'm giving you some tools. What does this mean when he says, okay, so first of all, Take up your loins girded with truth, okay? So each of these, these weapons, somehow I have to go, well, what does that mean? In what way am I girded with truth? So in the, in the passive sense, many have suggested that the, the idea is 
keep believing the gospel. The gospel is the truth. Just gird yourself about with the truth of the word of God. Trust the truth of the word of God. And while I think that's true, I think there's an active sense here as well. Not only is there a sense in which I embrace the truth of God's word and the gospel, but I also have to commit myself to truthfulness and integrity in my life. In other words, the Bible uses the analogy of anger. It says, don't let, earlier in chapter four, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a place, okay? The moment you and I forfeit integrity, we are, a, we are going to lose in our war against the devil. So if you're living a lie, if, 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 if you are embracing a dark side and hiding that, and, and then when confronted, you're going, no, no, I'm good, I'm not doing that. You are being ravaged by Satan. If there's any area in your life where you are being less than honest, where you're deceiving and living a lie and telling a lie, you're gonna just be taken down. So bring that to the light and repent of that. Turn from deceit. Secondly, he says, not only are we to put on the breastplate of righteousness, but he says, or girding your lungs of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, you could take that actively or passively. Passively, I could say, the breastplate of righteousness is the righteousness that I have in Christ. I have to keep reminding myself that God doesn't view me through my behavior, but he views me through the righteousness of Christ. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ, therefore there's no condemnation. Whatever the devil tells me, I'm not condemned. But the active side here, I think, would say this. If I'm not practicing righteousness, when I'm not doing what I know is right, I am setting myself up for Satan to ravage me. Third, he says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. They used to have like bronze shoes to cover their feet and the bottom of their feet because in war, the, the enemy would actually put sharp sticks and things on the ground, much like we would have landmines today. And so here I think it's, it's, it's probably primarily, how many times do you come to church without your shoes? Now there's a couple people in our church that come without their shoes, but that's intentional, okay? It's a different issue. How many of you forget to wear, oh, I forgot. Look, I got here and I forgot to wear my shoes. You don't forget to wear your shoes. You took a conscious effort to put your shoes on. In the same way, be conscious to be prepared to share the gospel, the preparation of the gospel of peace. So every morning as I'm putting on my shoes, remembering that I might come across somebody and I need to be prepared for a divine appointment and ready to share the gospel with them. He then says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith. Now, just real quick, there were different types of shields that Roman soldiers used back then. This particular word for shield was a shield that covered your whole body. It was a big one. You've kind of seen like riot gear. You know, imagine if, if, if a policeman in riot gear had a little round shield like Captain America. It wouldn't go so well, right? Bricks are flying at you. I want something that covers my whole body. And this particular shield was a large shield that was also covered with leather because leather is not flammable. And part of the things that happen in, in, in warfare is the enemy would throw projectiles at you, sometimes flaming projectiles, like flaming arrows. If it went into your leather sword, it's, it's gonna be extinguished. You're good to go. So Paul says, take up the shield of faith that you might extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. Now, what is the metaphor here? What flaming missiles is Satan throwing at me? 
I can assure you that it's unlikely that as you're leaving church, a bottle rocket will fly past your head literally. So I, I think, and I could be wrong here, but I lean toward the idea that these flaming missiles are the thoughts that he brings to your head. The suggestions. There's, there's numerous scriptures of this. Why has Satan filled your heart, Ananias? Then Satan put it into the heart of Judas to do this. So Satan is sending thoughts of fear, thoughts of doubts, suggestions of disobedience, lies to our mind. How do I stop it? If it's not true, I extinguish it with the shield of faith. I might feel it, I might think it, but if it's not true, then I stand against it and I envision that that's... So when Satan puts in my mind, you should hate them, you should, you should send them, and you should do this, you should... Or why don't you... You know, that secretary, she's... You might pay attention to her. Or you're not a Christian. All these flaming missiles that he sent, I extinguish them as I believe God's promise. Come hell or high water, that might not be how I feel. I might feel condemned, but, but Lord, help me by grace to take up this armor of God and believe your promises. And then he says, and then take the sword of the Spirit, the only, the only weapon of offense, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And clearly we know what that looks like because this is what Jesus did in spiritual conflict. He quoted scripture. Satan brings a lie to your mind. Our response is scripture. And I haven't read a verse in the Bible that says, thy word have I hidden my notebook. Because your only weapons are not the ones that are just written in this book. They're the ones that you've written into your life so that you can recall them. Jesus didn't have his scroll of Deuteronomy out in the wilderness when Satan was tempting him. He's like, wait a minute, I think there's a verse about that devil. The scriptures were dwelling in him. And I want to encourage you, this is why we read the word. This is why we meditate on the word. This is why I want to encourage you to memorize verses because they become your weapons. And when you're angry and the Lord brings to your mind, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let this sun go down on your, on your anger. When the devil says you're not a Christian and, and the Spirit of God gives you Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When you begin to worry and think, what's going to happen? In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So, so nothing new for some of you, but maybe an exhortation to say, are you, are you bringing the scriptures to mind? The Lord will help you, but he's not going to do it for you. And so there's a sense in which there's an active conduct, right? But one last thing, and then we'll, we'll wind this down. In, our, in, in what we're supposed to do, Lord, what do you want me to do? He's going, look, there's some activity that I want you to do. Be honest. Do what's right. Be prepared to share the gospel. Resist the devil's lies. Use scripture. But there's also a sense in which primarily here, Spiritual warfare is about dependence, right? He says, don't be strong in the strength of your might. He says, be strong in the strength of his might. Don't put on your armor, put on his armor. Recently, the Lord chastened me. I had some real battles in my mind with anxiety and some real dark spiritual attack I felt. And then I thought to myself, for two days, Tom, you haven't really been directing your prayers, and particularly about evil. You're like, well, how often do I pray about this, Tom? Maybe once a week? How about this? If the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread, then in the same prayer daily, he says, lead me not into temptation. 
So the dependent side says, this should be part of my daily prayer life. Satan doesn't go, I only fight on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Satan's always looking to come against you. Now, thankfully, he's not shelling you 24-7. That's why Paul says, so that we might be able to stand in the evil day. I've pondered that deeply. What does he mean by the evil day? I wish it meant one 24-hour period, and if you pass that, it's all over. Yes! I got through the evil day. The devil can't touch me anymore. No, I think the evil day is more like this. When, when Jesus resisted the devil, then it says, then Satan left him for an opportune time. So, so what I want you to understand is, today you might not be in any great spiritual conflict. But don't dare be deceived into don't think that that couldn't change quickly. And for those of you who are in a deep spiritual conflict, understand that it's not always going to be like this. But what God is speaking to your heart is to stand firm, to throw yourself on the mercies of Jesus and beg for him. So we've talked about our conflict, we've talked about our conduct, but let me close by reminding us of our conquering king, right? Let's remember not who we're fighting against, but who we're fighting for. And ironically, not just who we're fighting for, but who fought for us. And not just who fought for us, but who already won the battle. The lion of the tribe of Judah has already overcome. Jesus said, the prince of this world has already been judged. I once heard a guy pray for the devil. I said, why'd you pray for the devil? He goes, because I figured he's the worst being. We should pray for his salvation. I said, don't ever do that again. The scripture's right of his destruction. It is done. And so remind yourself in all of this hell and high water and conflict in our country and maybe in your own soul, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. There's victory in Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He's not up there going, boy, that devil's a lot tougher than I thought he was. And all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth. But James chapter 4 says this. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So the last thing we want to do is work ourselves up into a spiritual frenzy like a football coach at halftime. Let's go get the devil. We can beat them down. Let's go win the world to Christ and the gates of hell will not prevail. But rather, submit to God. For some of you, submitting to God means you haven't yet given your life to Christ. For whatever reason, you still have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have not said, Lord, I don't want to go to hell. I'm a sinner. I believe that Christ died for me. I give my life and trust in Jesus. Become my Lord and Savior, Jesus. Satan has blinded me for too long. And I encourage you that to submit to God is to come to Jesus. Do it now, right now. But if you're a Christian, we all go through times where we're like, wow, I've, kind of, I've wandered from the Lord in my beliefs and my behavior. You'll never get a note in the mail from God. Please make a note of my new address. James says, draw near to God. Submit to God. Now more than ever as a church, those of you online, we need to come together in a united submission to the Lord Jesus and in a united prayerful dependence on the Lord Jesus and united praise that our Savior has already conquered. But he wants to use Riverstone Church. Satan wants to destroy Riverstone Church. Where are you in the conflict? 
So thank God for his word. Would you join me as we close in prayer? I want to speak to those of you who have not yet given your life to Christ. If this morning you would like to do that, I want to pray for you. So I'm going to ask you just real quickly, if God has spoken to your heart and you realize that Satan has had his way in your life and you want to be saved by God, you want to be forgiven of your sins, would you just raise your hand and look up at me and and, and in doing so say, I want to talk to you, Pastor. Is there anybody that would like to talk to me? Just raise your hand and look up at me and I'll pray for you and we'll talk. Anybody at all? Right now, Satan might be going, don't do it, don't do it. Okay. Okay, anybody else? Okay. Father, thank you for our Christian family. Maybe those of you online, you go, I'm not sure if I'm saved or, or Satan's having his way in my life. Just contact us. We want to help. Father, we come to Jesus now. We thank you so much. We would have been destroyed and we would be on our way to hell if it weren't for the mercy of Jesus. If it weren't for the power of Jesus to rescue us. Thank you for his full and free forgiveness through the gospel. Father, this morning, we ask you to be merciful to us as your children. Cleanse us from our sin. Forgive us for our carelessness in the conflict. Forgive us for our lukewarmness or our preoccupation with too much preoccupation with things that don't even matter. We all pray that we can submit to God. If you've been speaking to us clearly about certain issues, please, Father, set us free to obey you. Whatever it is that's keeping you from Jesus, submit to God this morning. Lord Jesus, give then your children the strength to resist the devil. Help me. Lord, here I am up here preaching, but I'm no different from anybody else. The evil one comes against us, in fact, perhaps against all pastors and spiritual leaders. So please protect us. Protect our men and women, our marriages, our children, and our country. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May in the days to come, we see growing unity, growing victory. But we smell the sulfur. We know we're in conflict. And Father, I pray that your word will bring revival and joy and victory and power to us, your weak church in America. Have mercy and revive us, unite us, and give us a, a fresh purpose to fight the good fight. And thank you that we're not alone. Our general has not left us. He's right in our midst, and he leads us in triumph. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.